Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Tez Podagogy Podcast with me, Dan Worth. In this episode, we chat with Professor of Psychology at the University of Virginia, Dan Willingham. He talks to us about how you can help students regulate their own learning, chiefly by helping guide them through the thorny issue of understanding how much they don't know about a topic and how much they do, and how you go about addressing this. He spoke to us after appearing as a headline speaker at the World Education Summit that took place last week and at which Tez was the media partner. Hi, Professor Willingham. Thanks for uh, joining us after your excellent talk at the summit. I really enjoyed that. There was so many interesting ideas there. And one thing that really struck me was the idea of overlearning. Um, I'm, I sort of play the piano a little bit. And when I learn a piece and I get to that final bar, I sort of think to myself, oh, I've, I've learned it. I've learned the piece. If I come back to it a week later, I've forgotten lots of it. Because what I've, I realise I've, I haven't, I've learned all the component parts, but I haven't learned the whole thing. And that really struck me as you were talking. I thought about that. Do you think then, do you, is overlearning, if we want to term it that, is that given enough time in curriculums? Is there a, is there a danger to that teachers, maybe not through any fault of their own, they reach a point where they think, right, I've taught that content, they know it. And actually, you've been through the content, but you don't know it, know it like they need to know it. Right. That's a great question. And it's, it's a complicated question in a couple of ways. Mm. Um, one way in which it's complicated is sort of generalizing about... Um, sort of what teachers are doing in the classroom and the extent to which they're already doing overlearning or not is pretty, you know, it, we, we probably don't have the data that we would want to have to mm. say confidently, okay, teachers are doing this. And then the other aspect of this is making a judgment about what we think teachers ought to do, I think is also pretty complicated and, and fraught. Mm. Clearly, not everything should be overlearned. There, there are some non-trivial drawbacks to overlearning. The big drawback is motivation. I mean, it's it's not fun um, to keep practicing something that you feel like you already know and mm. you're ready to move on to something else. Um, so to me, what uh, what I think is important is for teachers to know about this phenomenon and, you know, sort of be, and again, I think I said this in my talk, it's the kind of thing where once you sort of make it explicit, everyone's like, oh yeah, of course, that totally makes sense. I mean, all we're saying is, right, if you learn it up to this criterion and you've just reached that criterion, then in the future, forgetting is going to happen mm. and you won't be at that criterion anymore. So it, it's not like it's, you know, anything that people don't kind of know. It's really just making it a little bit more explicit. So I think once we've done that, I think um, I think it's time for people like me to sort of step back and for teachers to sort of think through, okay, costs and benefits to this sort of overlearning. Where do I want to use that tool? Where do I want to encourage my students to use it? Mm. And you made a point about how you can do it. And I, I think your point there about it can become very demotivating is very true, isn't it? Again, if I return to my piano analogy, once I've learned something, the idea of having to then go into it and relearn a section seems yeah. very, I really struggled to do it. But I, my piano teacher will say, you need to just work on that section and I do and it improves. Is there ways though that like you said this earlier, like if you can sort of reincorporate it to future learning and sort of bring in that past knowledge, that seems like a better way of doing that if it can be done organically. Right. I think that's certainly one technique is to um, is to fold in the the content that you would like to like uh, to be practiced. So this uh, into a more complicated problem. So the student has the sense I'm working on this problem and then sort of a little sub part of it is to recall this information that you've committed to memory. So that doesn't feel difficult or like a problem at all or boring because you've got this other larger mm. problem that you're working on. 
The other thing that teachers could consider is, um, you know, there there is um, another way to set this up is to think, yes, here's content that I want my students to know three months from now. So what I'm going to do is today make sure that they're committing it to memory in such a way that if there's no practice between now and three months hence, they will remember it. The other thing to say is forgetting is going to happen. That's okay with me. We're going to revisit this content in a month's time, and that's going to be more of a relearning experience. Um, and this it's also a little bit of an opportunity to uh, for teachers to talk with students about memory and say, like, right, everybody, you know, we mastered this a month ago. What's happened? And sort mm. of talk about the fact that that's happened. Um, and the relearning process is also actually really good for memory. This is something that researchers have known since the 20s or 30s or something, but has really um, uh, been a very, very active topic, both in research and in application over the last 15 years or so. The mm. idea of retrieval practice, the heart of which is that uh, rummaging around looking for something in memory is actually a better way to cement it into memory than restudy. Mm. Um, and so when you think about, are you going to do overlearning, which is sort of practice, 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 even though you feel like you know it so that it's going to stay in there for three months, or are you going to do some retrieval practice, which may be a little bit more frustrating and feel kind of weird to you because you thought you knew it, mm. um, but that may end up being more efficient. So again, I come back to the idea, like in, in my ideal world, uh, teachers would just you know, have all these tools at their disposal and would think about, given their particular plans for the class, the direction they want to take it, um, you know, which which one is is best suited. Mm. Is, is there a way teachers can do this that is quite sort of fun and ad hoc in the form of, you know, sort of a random test and not a test like under quiet conditions, but I mean like a, a sort of ad hoc, right, suddenly stop the lesson, say, right, remember that thing a month ago, we're going to do a five-minute pop quiz on it and see, you know, and that will be that kind of, ah, and then you can show students that like, that's why you need to go back to things sometimes. It doesn't have to be this heavy group. Now we're going to spend another lesson again and again. You can break it up into, into your lesson plan more ad hoc. You absolutely can. And there's another way of doing that, that uh, teachers might want to consider, which is to make it even less explicit to students. Okay, now I'm testing you on some content from a month ago. So this is a content, uh, this is a technique called interleaving, which has also been um, um, the subject of a lot of writing mm. in the last uh, few years. And the idea of interleaving is, and this is, I think is easiest to appreciate in math class, because for many of us, we remember uh, sort of blocks of types of problems. And so a new principle is, it happens in science a lot too, a new principle is introduced, and then you get a problem set in which you practice that principle. And so it becomes pretty rote and pretty automatic because you're doing the same type of thing over and over again. Uh, but then when there's say a unit test in three weeks from them, you got a bunch of different problems intermingled. And so it's no longer rote at all because mm -hmm. now you need to recognize which type of problem is this? What's the right you know, solution strategy for this type of problem? So that's another way you can do what, what you describe. Like and you mentioned, like, here's a pop quiz on what we studied a month ago. Another way you could do it that way, another way to think about it is here's a pop quiz. It's got stuff from three months ago. It's got stuff from a month ago. Mm. It's got stuff from last week and so on. And that was sort of introduced this interleaving strategy where students have to sort of um, divine 
what uh, I've got all this knowledge, which uh, among everything I know, what is it that's most appropriate here? Mm. There, there was something else you said in your talk, which really struck me. It's very interesting, which is when you talked about it's important to learn things both A to B and B to A. And it right. made me think of, um, if, if I try and think of the capital city of a certain country, you, I can do that much more easily sometimes than the other way around. If you say, this is the city, what capital, what country is it capital of? Much harder. Right. Again, is that is that a well understood phenomenon? Is that is that something that again it's important to outline? Because if let's say if the exam question poses it the other way around, potentially, a student might panic and actually they do know it. They just need to stop and think, oh, it's hang on, if I put it the other way around, I can work it out. You know, what what right. more do we know about why does that happen? Right. Um, if if that's well understood, I don't understand it. <laughs> Someone else may, right. may be able to tell you more about it. Um, other than yeah, other than the fact that you know your experience is absolutely replicable in the lab, and and this is when when students get so frustrated when they feel like I can't believe I got that one wrong. I knew that mm. one. I think that's one reason. It's not the only reason, but it's one reason that that happens is they knew A to B, and then the test asks what goes with B, and they can't come up with A. Mm. Do, do you, I mean, putting aside the sort of the why it happens, again, how can teachers overcome that? Is it about obviously just, just reframing questions and sort of throwing them a little bit by saying, say, rather than the obvious question A, what's the answer B, you do put B and ask for A? Yeah, I think, yeah, absolutely. Um, so again, explaining to students, this is the way your memory works and it's kind of quirky and peculiar. I think it it does help a lot if you can um, provide examples. So, you know, in the, a, a very common one used in a lot of psychology textbooks is salt and pepper, which mm. I mentioned um, in my talk. And for, for those of you watching or listening now, if you uh, missed the talk, um, if you ask people, what's the first thing you think of when I say the word salt, a very high proportion of people um, uh, will say pepper, at, le at least in the States and, mm. and uh, possibly elsewhere. Uh, but if you say, what's the first thing I, you think of when I say pepper? Actually, very few people say salt. And mm. so people say things like hot or chili or something like that. Um, so it, uh, this is an example of this sort of A to B, B to A um, distinction. Mm. And it's one that, that uh, even young students can understand pretty readily. Uh, and I, I always like to not only sort of do things that are helping my students' memory, but also try to help them understand why we're doing it this way, what's what's under the hood, so to speak, in their mind, so that it 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 makes sense. It's much more, they're much more motivated to uh to do it if they understand why they're doing it. Yeah, and that, that's a really interesting arena, isn't it? This idea of teaching students to understand why they know something or how they know it or why they know it in a certain context and not in another context. Is that the kind of conversation that should be had almost in that kind of very sort of, you know, um, I would say scientific way of talking about what knowledge is? Or is it best better done? Or another way to do it is through showing a student by sort of, I don't know, setting them questions and making them realise, ah, oh, if I take that away from you, you don't know. Or does that right. risk then becoming demotivating? And, you know, it, can, it seems like an interesting I think topic. I think, it, I'm sorry, Dan, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I got sorry. excited. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think both. I mean, I think, explain, I think demonstrations like that can be very powerful uh, because one of the things that is um, a general truism of memory is that a lot of the things that are really good for your memory don't feel at the time like they're really doing any good. Overlearning is one example. Mm. Um, I, I didn't get into study techniques that are more effective or less effective, but rereading is the most common technique that, that students use to study, and it's horribly inefficient. 
Um, it's not very good for memory. Mm -hmm. And what it does, though, is it, it increases the sense of familiarity. Uh, and so that I did talk about. And so rereading leads you to feel like, yeah, this all makes sense. I know this. I know this. But actually, it's not really sticking with you in memory at all. So I think that um, because of the, this uh, phenomenon that a lot of what is good for memory feels like it's not doing any good and what uh, feels like it's really helping with memory actually doesn't do any good. I think you have to do a certain amount of these sorts of demonstrations for students, as you suggest, mm. that sort of exposes um, the efficacy or, or inefficacy of the, of the techniques. But then I, I like to add an explanation um, if it if it's workable. But then, like for the for this A B B A thing, I didn't know what the explanation was. <laughs> so I can't always do that. But if I can, I'm gonna. I'm gonna yeah, talk. but that, that's a good point. Is actually if you do that and then explain and say, well, actually, this is a, a facet of memory. And like you say that your example, if you have a map, you can remember more states than without. It's not that you're a bad learner or you're, you haven't studied hard enough. It's just that's part of the human brain. And yeah. if you know that, at least you can then think that when you're studying for your test, you need to know that just rereading a chapter isn't the same as then self-testing. Exactly. Like that. Yeah. And that's why I think, you know, the, uh, every teacher has had this experience, which I mentioned, the talk of a student frustrated saying, I know it, I just can't explain it. Mm. Uh, and when, especially when you first start out in teaching, I'll speak for myself at least, you know, it strikes you as almost funny. You're like, well, you don't know it. Right. Yeah. But uh, you know, with a little more experience, I, you know, you can see where they're coming from and you see what their, what their own experience has been and why, why they would say something like that. Mm. Well, and talking about self-testing, one thing I really, really struck me as well from your, your talk during the World Education Summit was where you said about actually it's a good thing to get students to make their own memory cards, you know, flashcards, right. test cards, I think, and, and not just rely on an online resource, which I remember at school having a huge, great wadge of these small little cards, particularly for geography. I found that very helpful. And they were color coordinated and I wrote yeah. them all out and everyone did it and everyone would show off how neat their cards are. And I kind of imagine now that, yeah, it's all online. You go on, you find a test about longshore drift or, you know, whatever it is, and you test yourself. Yeah. But your point was actually the act of writing it out and creating it is, is, is as important as then using it. Is that, right. is that basically what you would say? It is, yes. And uh, I would say the writing out probably isn't that important, but deciding what is important enough to end up in your slide deck, mm. thinking about what's a good way to phrase this question, how would I put the answer, what goes with what, organizing it, all of that is, is time well spent. Mm. And actually, that's the way you describe it. That, that sounds like a skill that transfers across both learning and life, doesn't it? Like working out what goes with what and what is that worth writing down? Is it worth me knowing that, you know, that digit from my bank code or that kind of thing? It sounds like actually yeah, that act in of, in of itself carries a lot of weight beyond revision, which is something I've not really thought about it like that before. But actually, what you choose yourself to write down is, exactly. is a kind of memory. And, and, and it, you know, it's probably least, I think it's still valuable, but it's probably least valuable when you're really learning a, a big load of factoids, um, you know, mm -hmm. so you mentioned geography in a beginning geography course or um, uh, which I've never got beyond. Uh, but I think actually any really beginning course where you're learning a lot of vocabulary, a lot of it is sort of A, B, what's the meaning of this? Think about preparing for an essay type test in a somewhat more advanced course where, yes, there's still facts to commit to memory. But what you're really going to be tested on are broad themes and now you really need to start thinking about how this content is organized, how these different ideas relate to one another. 
there creating your own materials is going to mean something like, all right, what is Professor Worth going to ask us to write about? Well, mm-hmm. what were the big themes? You know, he's obviously going to ask about the big themes in the reading and the things that he lectured on. And so, you know, that's the that's what you want students to be thinking about mm-hmm. rather than looking it up online and finding what somebody else thought about those matters. Yeah. I mean, I think if I was asking, if I was Professor Worth, I think I'd be asking, how did I end up with this professorship? I think that would be a great <laughs> question to ask. It's extremely confusing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what I did, what, what and, the, and maybe a final question, and this is a big one. And so again, appreciate maybe sort of, if there's a direct answer, I don't know, but on this whole topic, to me, and I may be wrong, but it sounds like this is potentially easier. And I use that word, you know, aware that that's not really necessarily the best word with some subjects like maths or maybe chemistry in its early stages where there are more kind of clear right and wrong answers. When you come yeah. into maybe English or maybe like drama or things where it's subjective, is it harder there? If is trying to remember why is Macbeth, you know, uh, tortured soul? Why is the great Gatsby? A, that's a big open question where you can choose lots of answers. When it's what is the chemical compound for salt? There's one answer, and that's right. Is that right. fair to say? Is it harder with some of those more interpretive subjects to sort of have this thing around, you know, learning I, and overlearning? I would say, I would say no. I would say it's not. It's not harder. I would say um, your your my sense is the same as yours. That I mean, the the content of the uh, test is going to be less predictable. But in terms of you know if you if you know what we're talking about is still just a uh, a narrow if decisive part of schooling experience, mm. which is preparing for you know sitting an exam where you need to commit a bunch of stuff to memory. Kids do lots of other things, but when it comes to committing things to memory, this is a pretty effective technique. The fact that the uh, what's going to end up on the exam and what you might have to write about is less pre- might be less predictable in some classes. I think doesn't change what's going to be the most effective way to prepare. You still want, even if it's um, the questions are high level, you still want to prepare by thinking about what did Professor Worth say about Macbeth? What were the important themes in that mm. play? What were you know? How did those tie together? How does that relate to the the cultural? Um, uh, milieu at the time, and how do, what how does that follow Shakespeare's plays follow, and so forth? Mm. All of that are things that you you know presumably you've studied, and then things that you can make sure will be in your brain at the time of the test. I see. So seeing a theme or or a topic or a sort of an interpretation of a text is a fact in a way, in of its as much as a chemical compound is. You know, The Great Gatsby is about the American dream. That's sort of that's what you kind of need to hold on to as your, your I don't know, that's, a bit, that's a bit generic, but I think that kind of makes the point, right? It's true. And, and when you think about, um, you know, the nature of those classes, most of the time, what the instructor is doing is they're really building an argument. I mean, they do have a way that they offer for you to see the text. And there may be a couple of different ways. And they may even say like, you know, you, of course, should, you know, bring your part of yourself to the text and so forth. Uh, and that's naturally very valuable. But a good starting point is to sort of listen to what the instructor has said mm. and sort of try that on for size and then see what you might bring to the text based on your own experience and your experience in other courses. So, yeah, I think that, I mean, you know, they're up there talking for a reason. They they think what they're saying is fairly yeah. important. <laughs> so you would be well advised to uh, have absorbed that, I think. Mm. Excellent. Well, I mean, I think we've covered so many interesting things there, both in, in the content and sort of some of the, the even the very sort of specific topics we've touched on about how to think about this. And I think 
there's a lot there that I think teachers who, you know, the idea of overlearning, of, of A, B, B, A, of, you know, encouraging students to write their own notes or more revision guides almost. So they are the mm. ones selecting what they remember. It shows, doesn't it, how you can, some of these things can sound, they're both the theoretical end of learning, but you can pull them through to that practical, you know, here's what you can do in the classroom. And that's always so great to do because I think it shows, you know, how this all knits together so nicely. So thank you so much for, for talking to us and sharing your insights. And I think, you know, hopefully everyone listening to this or reading the article will get a lot out of it, I'm sure. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking with you.